All right, so we'll go ahead and um, get started here. It's uh, 10.30, so we'll get uh, get moving here. Um, I know a number of you weren't able to come last week uh, just due to the weather and stuff like that, uh, but the good news is uh, those things will be made online. We recorded it. We talked about um, Bible translations last time, and then we started into this video. So um, the first part of the video, which you didn't get to see, uh, was in some ways some things we had already talked about, like the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. Um, so at this point, we are ready to dive into an overview of the Old Testament. And again, I think you'll find it very beneficial. Um, so if you are taking notes or anything, I'd encourage you to write this part of it down in terms of breaking up the Old Testament, 17, 5, 17. So he's going to explain how you can get a, an understanding of the whole context of the Old Testament um, using that. And then next week will be the New Testament. Uh, and then we'll start jumping into some more specifics of biblical interpretation. So let me uh, start us off in prayer and then we'll dive in here. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time together this morning. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your faithfulness, your goodness and mercy toward us. So I pray today as we take a look at the Old Testament that everybody here can come out with a, with a much better understanding of how the Old Testament is put together and to have a love and appreciation for it, to see how it points us to Christ. Thank you again. Please bless our time. In your name we pray. Amen. trying to make sense of it. The first 17 are the historical books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Those are the 17 historical. Then you get five poetical, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And then finally, the last 17 are the prophetical books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Anybody want to come up and do that for everybody else? No. Whenever you think about the Old Testament, you're trying to make sense of it. Think like this. 39 books written before the birth of Jesus. 17, 5, 17. 17 historical books, 5 poetical books, and 17 prophetical books. And now number 7 will help us a bunch. The key to understanding the Old Testament is to realize that those 17 historical books cover the major storyline of the Old Testament. From the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1 to approximately 400 years before Jesus in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the remaining poetical and prophetical books fit in at their proper places. Here's a maybe a better way of looking at it. Along this line, we've got all 17 of the historical books. From in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth to approximately 400 B.C. 
And then the poetical books fit in. Job, I'm not sure when it was written, but it was written about a man named Job who probably lived during the time of Abraham. Oh, let me just stop it right there for a minute. Does this make sense what he's saying? So you have the first 17 books of the Bible. He's called, you know, we consider those the historical books. They take us from Genesis through Malachi there. Um, so they, they cover the entire span of the Old Testament. And then you're, there's 17 of those. Then there's five poetic books. They're, they're fitting in sort of about here on your timeline, whatever years those are. Time of David, a little bit beyond David, um, going into the, the prophets too. Um, and then you have your 17 prophetic books which are really, some of them are before the exile, some of them are during the exile, and some of them are after the exile. So what he's going to say is, if you read the first 17 books of the Old Testament, you'll have the Old Testament, essentially. That make sense? And the, the last 17 fit in here, and they give an understanding of some of the specifics that were going on during the reign of the kings and, and things like that. Does that make sense? Okay. So I thought that I think that's a very helpful way just to maybe make just have a bigger picture of the Old Testament is if, if I read the first 17, I've got the Old Testament and then the remainder of those fit in in different points there. Am Isaac and Jacob, which is back in Genesis. David didn't write all of the Psalms, but he wrote a lot of them. And so we might put the book of Psalms during 1st and 2nd Samuel, when we read about David's life. Solomon wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. His story is told in 1st Kings chapters 1 through 11. And then the prophetical books. See, we've got three arrows here. They, they fit into three different categories that we'll talk, talk about later. But right now, I just want you to see that they fit down here toward the latter end of Israel's history. Tell you what's so helpful about this, at least for me, and I think maybe for you. As you think about trying to wrap your hands around the Old Testament and these 39 sometimes intimidating books, the fact is that to get the big story, all you have to do is read the first 17. Oh, you mean I don't have to read all 39? Now, of course, we want to read all 39, but in terms of getting your head around the big idea and the big story, what this means is you just have to read the first 17. I think that's helpful. I think it's encouraging, and I think that you can do it. major storyline. If those 17 historical books tell me the big story, then I want to try to understand that. And Max Anders wrote a book years ago called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Phenomenal little book. I got it when I was a sophomore in college, and it was just so helpful that I've included it in, in clarifying the Bible. I've often come back to number eight and tried to, to make number eight my own, but I can't do any better than Max Anders. 
And so I just want to share his nine big ideas with you. And then I want to walk you through this story. He took the 17 historical books of the Old Testament, I think, in my mind's eye. I sat back with a cup of coffee and thought, if I had to do it in nine words, how would I do it? Creation, patriarch, exodus, conquest, judges, kingdom, exile, return, silence. I'm going to walk you through these 17 historical books and then come back to these. And I think it might be helpful for you. Number eight is going to take us a while. And I'm going to share a lot of details with you that, listen, I do not expect you to get them all. All right? I don't expect you to remember it. I don't expect you to put it all together. But here's what I'm very hopeful for. I do, and there will be a quiz. (laughs) (laughs) This might be the first time in your life anybody's just ever told you the story. You've heard a lot of these stories the crossing of the Red Sea, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, Joshua and Caleb saying, we can do this. But maybe nobody's ever strung those stories together for you. And that's what I'd like to do in number eight. So see if you can hang with me throughout this. Here's the lay of the land for us. And in Genesis chapters one and two, God created the heavens and the earth. On day six, he created man in his image. Chapter 2 gives us a closer look into God creating Adam, and then from taking from him a rib, he fashioned Eve, brought them together. And Moses, commenting on this, would say, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have a, a husband and a wife together, underneath God's authority, loving him, Worshipping him, submitting their lives to him in a wonderful, beautiful garden. It's great. But in chapter 3, the serpent comes, deceives them, and they fall into sin. And it brought devastating consequences. God made a promise even as early as chapter 3, verse 15, that one day he would bring a fix to all of this. But still... God covered their nakedness and kicked them out of the garden. And in chapter 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And in chapter 5, through the genealogies, the common refrain is, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And in chapter 6, evil has become so great that God essentially says, I'm going to start all over. I'm going to kill everything on the earth and start over. Noah, I choose you. Your wife, your three boys, and their wives, I want you to build an ark. I'm going to send a flood, and I'm going to judge the earth. And Noah obeyed, and God brought judgment through the flood. And in Genesis chapter 9, Noah and his family come off of the ark and basically receive a reiteration of what God had said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. But sin is still alive and well. Noah gets drunk. One of his boys pulls a fast one. Chapters 10 and 11, as the people are meant to fill the earth, they come together to build a city and a tower to their own fame. And God looks down, confuses their languages, and forces them to disperse. It's the beginning of the nations, but it's also the beginning of the nations apart from relationship with God. They need a savior. 
And in Genesis chapter 12, God begins in earnest to make good on that promise of Genesis 3.15. He chooses a man named Abram from Ur of the Chaldees. And he says, Abraham, I want you to leave your place and come to the land which I will show you. And I'm going to give you many descendants. And I'm going to bless you. And through you and your descendants, I'm going to bring blessing to the entire world. And so Abraham obeys. He leaves Ur, comes up to Haran, and then down into the land of Canaan, which God had promised. He eventually has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Joseph is the favorite of those 12 sons. The other brothers don't like that too much, and so they decide to get rid of him. They thought about killing him, but then they decided, let's just sell him into slavery, and that's exactly what they did. And Joseph ended up toward the end of the book of Genesis down in Egypt. But God was with Joseph, and God exalted Joseph to second in command in all of Egypt. A famine hit back in the land of Canaan, and the family was forced to go down to Egypt to get food. And lo and behold, they're reunited with their brother that they thought they had gotten rid of a long time ago. He's their only source of food and sustenance. And they were scared. But Joseph said to his brothers, come closer. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of his people. And so the family is restored. They're given land in Egypt. And there they begin to multiply. God had said to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15, Hey, Abraham, look at the stars. Can you count them? No, sir. So shall your descendants be. Like the sand of the seashore, so will your descendants be. And God begins to make good on that promise in the early chapters of Exodus. As this family begins to grow and multiply. But a new Pharaoh comes to power who doesn't like the fact that this group of people is multiplying so fast, he feels threatened by them, and so he wants to put an end to it. And he begins to make life very, very difficult upon the people. And eventually they cry out, God, you promised us a land flowing with milk and honey, but here we are down here in Egypt in bondage. The Bible says that God heard their prayer, and he saw their affliction, and he acted on their behalf. He raised up a man named Moses to lead the people out of Egypt into the freedom and into the promised land. So through the ten plagues that maybe you're familiar with and culminating in the Passover, that was the tenth of the plagues where God says, Moses, now go to the people. After Pharaoh, they continued to say, no, no, no. Go to the people, tell them to take a lamb, unblemished and spotless, Tell them to kill that lamb, shed its blood, take the blood of that lamb, put it over their door. I'm coming through in judgment. And every home that does not have the blood of the lamb over their door, I'm going to kill the firstborn. Whether it's the firstborn of the king or the firstborn of the slave girl or the firstborn of the cattle, every firstborn is going to die. But if I see the blood of the lamb over the door, I will pass over and they obeyed God slaughtered the lamb put the blood over their door 
And God's judgment came through Egypt and killed the firstborn. And God's people were spared. And Pharaoh said, get out. Under Moses' leadership, they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and came down to Mount Sinai. We're now in Exodus chapter 19. And there at Mount Sinai, God enters into a covenant with his people. Where he says to them, listen, I am the Lord, and you are my people. And I want to make you my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests that will be blessed by me and represent me to all the nations of the earth. And the people said, all that God has said, we will do. And in Exodus chapter 20, God revealed the Ten Commandments and in the following chapters, a number of different laws as to how they would worship him and obey him. He gave them instructions on how they were to build the tabernacle, this tent-like structure that would go with them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And within this tabernacle, there would be the Holy of Holies, this room, if you will, where the Ark of the Covenant would be. And inside the Ark of the Covenant would be the Ten Commandments. And this little room would be covered up with the veil. And inside that Holy of Holies, God's presence would dwell among his people. And in the latter part of the book of Exodus, they followed God's instructions and built the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of the book, God's presence fills the tabernacle. God is with his people in a very, very special way. The book of Leviticus takes place right here at Mount Sinai. We don't go any further. And it's a book of further laws as to how the people would approach and worship God. Chapters 1 through 7, sin offering, burnt offering, trespass offering, I'll go ahead and say it. It's that part of scripture when you're having trouble sleeping, it's a good place to go, okay? <laughs> Chapters 8, 9, and 10, the establishment of the priesthood within Israel. These men from the tribe of Levi who would represent God to the people and the people to God, and they would be the ones who would offer up the sacrifices on behalf of the people. Chapters 11 through 15, the clean and the unclean regarding food and skin diseases and the like. Wonderful reading in your Bible. Chapter 16 is a very important chapter. It's the Day of Atonement. It's that one day a year in the life of Israel when the high priest and the high priest only could go into the Holy of Holies. And what he would do is he would take two goats and on one goat, he would place his hands and he would confess the sins of the people on that goat. They would take that goat and they would shoo it away into the wilderness, never to be seen again. It's called the scapegoat. It's an incredible picture of one who would come and take our sins away, never to be seen again. Take the second goat, put his hands upon that, confess the sins of the people, and then they would slaughter this one. And the high priest would take the blood into the holy place, through the veil, into the holy of holies, and sprinkle the blood of this sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant over the broken law of God. And he, he, the high priest would make atonement covering for the people. Sounds like someone we know, doesn't it? Someone who will take our sins away. Someone who will die 
and shed his blood for us. A little bit later in the book of Leviticus in chapter 26, very important as well. It's kind of the, the warp and the woof, if you will, of this old covenant law. Where in Leviticus 26, God says, listen, if you will obey me, I will bless you. And here's what it'll look like. But if you disobey me, you will experience the curses. And this is what it will look like. Well, then the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, God says to Moses, I want you to number all the men of war. Because we need to get ready to leave Mount Sinai and head toward the promised land. So they number the men they organize around the tabernacle. And they begin to march in Numbers chapter 10 on their way to the promised land. And in Numbers chapter 12, they come to a city called Kadesh Barnea, just south of the promised land. And they say, let's, let's do this. Let's send in some spies. Let's take one spy from each of the 12 tribes and send them in just to check it out. They send in those spies, and those 12 spies spend 40 days in the land. And the land is wonderful. One of my favorite verses in this section is that they find a cluster of grapes within the land, and two guys have to whoop, put it over their shoulders. This is indeed a wonderful land. It's called the land flowing with milk and honey. That's just simply a metaphor of a blessed place. But they also saw the Anakim there, these people that were big and strong in these fortified cities, and it scared them to death, at least 10 of them. Joshua and Caleb were two of those spies, and they said, listen, guys, it doesn't matter how big they are and how fortified their cities are. God has promised us this land. If we'll trust him, we can have it. Well, those 12 spies came back, reported to the people, and the people believed the report of the 10. And they say, God has brought us into the desert to die, we and our children. Joshua and Caleb said, no, but the people believed the report of the ten. And because of it, God said, listen, for every day that you spent in the land spying it out, you're going to spend a year in the wilderness wandering. Forty days in the land, forty years wandering. Every one of you, 20 years old and older, is going to die. And your children that you were so scared about. God has brought us in the wilderness to die. We and our children. Your children, they will inherit the land. I can take good care of your children. So the rest of the book of Numbers is the wandering in the wilderness. The old generation dying, except for Joshua and Caleb. And the new generation arising up to take possession of the land. This is the way I like to do it. Just a squiggly line to remind me that's not the path they took. It just reminds me that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then they made their way up to the east side of the Jordan River, poised to enter into the land. Before Moses died, he had an opportunity to address the nation one last time. His address to the nation is the book of Deuteronomy. It's wonderful reading, at least the early chapters of it are, some of my favorite reading, where he encourages this young generation that has arisen in the desert and is about to enter into the land to, to remember God's faithfulness, to encourage them in the present, 
to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to teach his word to their children, to obey him. And then in a prophetic spirit, if you will, toward the end of the book, he looks to a day when Israel will turn away from the Lord. And those covenant curses, Leviticus 26 and again in Deuteronomy 28, would, would come upon them. And they would be taken out of their land, but that one day God would be faithful to bring them home. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 34, Moses dies. Joshua becomes the new leader. And under Joshua's leadership, they cross the Jordan River and enter into the land. They cross the Jordan. They came to the first city was Jericho. This was one of those fortified cities. And I think God did this intentionally. Here's the first city you're going to have to take. And I want to teach you a lesson from the very beginning. How are we going to do this? Here's how you're going to do it. On day one, I want you all to all walk around the city, and then I want you to go back to camp <coughs> and sleep well. On day two, I want you to walk around the city again, go back to camp. Day three, walk around it. Day four, five, six. On day seven, what I want you to do is walk around it seven times. And you guys with horns, when I tell you, I want you to blow them. And all the rest of you, when I tell you, I want you to scream and yell. So on day seven, they walked around. God said, they blew their trumpets, and they screamed, ah! and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. God had said to Joshua in chapter 1, listen, if you'll obey me everywhere your foot goes, I'm going to give it to you. And from the very beginning, I think, with this very first victory, God is saying, listen, to borrow a verse from later in the Old Testament, it's not by might nor by power, but it's by my spirit. That if you will obey me, if you will trust me, the walls will come down and I will give you the land. Well, the very <coughs> next city after that is a little city called Ai. Israel got cocky. They thought they could do it in their own strength and they got whooped. They learned their lesson. And from that point on, if I counted up right, Israel was 31 and 0. That's a pretty good record. <laughs> They made their way first straight across the land. And then there was a coalition of Canaanite kings in the south who kind of banded together and wanted to go to war against Israel, and Israel hooked them. And there was a coalition of kings in the north that said, we better do something about this. Well, Israel went north and defeated them. Victory after victory after victory after victory. The book of Joshua is a book of success. Early on, God had said to Joshua, chapter 1, verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. Then shall your way be prosperous, and then you will have success. And as Israel trusts and obeys, they win, and God gives them the land. Later in the book of Joshua, they divide the land up among the twelve tribes, Judah, you get this portion. Simeon, you get this. Issachar, you get this. Reuben, you get this. Gad, you get this. The 12 tribes get their allotments of land. Then we come to the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a terrible time in Israel's history. God 
had said through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7, when you enter into the land, I want you to utterly destroy the Canaanites. Do not intermarry with them and do not worship their gods. Well, in Judges chapters 1, 2, and chapter 3 through verse 6, guess what we read? They did not utterly destroy the Canaanites. They did intermarry with them and they did worship their gods. And from chapter 3, verse 7, all the way through chapter 16, we see these cycles of sin and servitude and supplication and salvation time and time and time again. Here's the way it goes. Sin. The phrase is, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And because of their sin and rebellion against God, God did exactly what he said he would do. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey, it will not go well for you. In fact, your neighbors will come and give you heck. The Moabites, the Philistines, the Midianites. And so Israel would do evil in the sight of the Lord. Here would come one of their neighbors to make things very, very difficult on them for years. And then finally, they would cry out supplication, fancy word for prayer. God, help us. And God would be faithful to raise up salvation. He would raise up a judge. Now, these are not black-robed judges as we would think of them today. These are political military leaders that God would raise up to bring victory for the people. And everything would be great until that judge died. And Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Moabites came in, and Israel cried out, and God raised up. Shamgar and Ehud and Deborah and Jephthah and Samson. Over and over again, sin, servitude, supplication, help us, salvation. You get to the end of the book of Judges, chapter 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Does it carry the book further in terms of its chronology? What it does is it, if you will, it, it pulls back the curtains. And the author says, let me show you what, what was going on throughout this entire period, almost 400 years of Israel's history. And it is some terrible reading. Idolatry is rampant. Immorality. They almost exterminated an entire tribe within Israel, the Benjamites. The common phrase throughout those final chapters of the book Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Ruth doesn't carry the story further. It takes place during this period of the judges, and it's the story about a Moabite woman. She's not even an Israelite. Who comes to put her trust in Israel's God and seemingly has more faith than can be found in all of Israel. Well, come to 1 Samuel. Samuel is the last of the judges, and he'll be the key figure that is going to transition the nation from this loose federation of tribes to the kingdom of Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people cry out, we want a king like all the other nations. And God says, are you sure? They said, yes. And in 1 Samuel chapter 9, they got him, Saul. Was the first king in Israel. And so now under Saul's leadership, 
He brings stability to the nation. Or again, not a loose federation of tribes. We're now the kingdom of Israel. He reigns for 40 years. After he dies, David becomes king. And David reigns for 40 years. When he dies, Solomon becomes king. First Kings chapter 1. He reigns for 40 years. Don't ask me why. It's one of the questions I'm going to ask God. Saul for 40 years, David for 40 years, Solomon for 40 years. When Solomon died in 1 Kings chapter 12, he had a boy named Rehoboam who was in line for the throne. And the older men in Israel came to him and said, Rehoboam, your daddy was great, but his leadership could be a little tough at times. We would encourage you to reconsider some things. Rehoboam, fool that he was, went to his buddies that he grew up with, and he said, hey, the older men within Israel are telling me this. What do y'all think? And his young buddies said, they think your daddy was tough? You ought to show them. Rehoboam listened to the voice of his young buddies. There's a proverb that says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools comes to ruin Rehoboam went back to those older men in Israel and he said, y'all think my daddy was tough? Watch this. And because of his foolishness and his unwillingness to listen to those older men, the kingdom of Israel split. No longer were we the united kingdom of Israel. We're now the divided kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam in the south over two tribes called Judah and a fellow named Jeroboam in the north over ten tribes called Israel. From 1 Kings 12, when that happens, we now begin to trace the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. This is where the reading gets very difficult because the, the author is jumping between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, and a lot of these kings' names are very, very similar. And sometimes they're exactly the same. So it's very confusing. But as long as you know why you're confused, it's not so bad, right? That's why it's confusing. The northern kingdom from 1 Kings 12 trunks along into 2 Kings all the way until 2 Kings chapter 17. When the Assyrians appear in 722 B.C., they're now the world power, if you will. In 722 B.C., 2 Kings chapter 17, they come into the northern kingdom, defeat them, and take vast amounts of their people away into exile. See Leviticus 26. See Deuteronomy 28. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey, it will not go well for you. And one of the worst is that you'll be taken out of the land. 2 Kings continues on a little bit until you get to the end of the book in 2 Kings 25. When by this time the Babylonians are in power, they've defeated the Assyrians. And in 2 Kings 25, they come into the southern kingdom of Judah. They hit them on three occasions, 605 B.C., 597 B.C. But the big one to remember is 586 B.C. when they destroyed the temple within Jerusalem. 
and took vast amounts of the people into exile. Now, God had made a promise through Jeremiah that they would be exiled for 70 years, the southern kingdom of Judah. The book of 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles doesn't, doesn't move the story forward any. It, it basically rehashes some of the history that we've already read about in 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Got a little bit different perspective that I'll let you pursue on your own. So we come to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther. God had made that promise. And the book of Ezra is about God fulfilling that promise. By this time now, the Persians have defeated the Babylonians, and now they're in power. And in 539-538 BC, King Cyrus of Persia, God stirs up his heart in Ezra chapter 1 to allow the people to return back to their land and rebuild their temple. And so, under a fellow named Zerubbabel, about 50,000 of the Jewish people leave Persia and go back to the land to rebuild the temple. And in chapter 3 of Ezra, they lay the foundation of the temple. They're so excited about it. But chapter 4 comes, and with it, opposition. Opposition from the outside, and we know also they had some misplaced priorities going on on the inside. And because of it, they quit working on the temple for 16 years. In Ezra chapter 5, God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who came along and said, get back to work. And so they did. In 520, those prophets stirred them up. And by 516, four years later, they had the temple rebuilt. Some years later, in 457 B.C., another fellow named Ezra came back with about 2,000 people. And the Bible says of him that he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his statutes throughout all of Israel. And Ezra came back with those 2,000 people, and he led the people in the word of God, in prayer, in repentance, and in revival. Several years later, in 444 B.C., Nehemiah comes back. He was over here in Persia. He was the cupbearer to the king. And his brothers had come from Jerusalem, and he had said, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? And his brothers said, hey, the people are in distress, and the walls are broken down. And Nehemiah began to pray day and night for four months. And God gave him an opportunity in Nehemiah chapter 2. The king said, why are you so sad? And I love it. The text says, so I prayed to the Lord and I said. It's one of those quick prayers. And he told him why he was so sad. And the king said, what do you need? And God provided for Nehemiah from beginning to end. And Nehemiah came back, led the people, to rebuild the walls around the city in about 52 days. The book of Esther doesn't carry the story further. It actually takes place within the chronology of the book of Ezra. But it's about, what about all the Jewish people who didn't return? It's an amazing story. It's the only book in our Bible where the name of God is not mentioned at all. But as many say, the hand of God is clearly evident. It's an amazing story of how God turned the tables providentially and allowed the Jewish people 
to defend themselves against a, a decree of the Persian king for the extermination of every single one of them. And God exalts this little girl named Esther to be queen in Persia for such a time as this. And God uses her to protect the people. Jewish people still celebrated today the Feast of Purim. So, the northern kingdom had gone into exile into Assyria. And years later, the southern kingdom into exile into Babylon. But God fulfilled his promise to allow the people to return. It's now about 400 B.C. A remnant is back in the land. The temple is rebuilt and the walls are restored. And now, we're waiting. The, that's the 17 historical books. It takes us through creation. Creation, fall, flood, tower of Babel. And the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And the exodus from Egypt with the crossing of the Red Sea and down to Mount Sinai and the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea and the wandering in the wilderness. And to the conquest under Joshua where they cross the Jordan, defeat Jericho, and then go south and north, defeating the land and dividing it up among the tribes. It takes us through the period of Judges that dark period in Israel's history of sin and servitude and supplication and salvation and sin and servitude and supplication and salvation time and time and time again when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To the transition to the kingdom. We want a king like all the other nations. The United Kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, but then the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah and on to the exiles. The northern kingdom taken away into Assyria. The southern kingdom taken away by the Babylonians. But then the return of the southern kingdom and fulfillment of God's word. Under Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple. Under Ezra to rebuild the people. Under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And then to that period of silence. 400 years or so waiting until Jesus comes on the scene. Now, that was number eight. That was a lot of stuff. Again, I don't anticipate nor expect you to remember all of that. But what I hope it does for you is that it encourages you again to say, oh, okay, it's just the first 17 books. And if I can learn these nine big ideas from Max Anders, I can begin to read through these 17 historical books and I can get my handle on this. That's what I'm hopeful for. Concerning the poetical books, Job is about suffering. This was a story of the suffering and the shaping of a man named Job. And he suffered much. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost his health. Satan was down there roaming upon the earth and God said to him, what are you doing? Roaming about the earth. 
God says, have you considered my man Job? Satan says, listen, the only reason Job worships you, the only reason Job loves you is because things are so good for him. If you would let me get to it, then things would be different. God says, you can do this, but you can only go this far. And yet Job has to suffer deeply. His wife comes to him and says, curse God and die. That's great advice, huh? He's got three buddies that don't give him much better advice. Job has to wait until chapter 38 to ever hear from God. The problem is God doesn't give him the answers that he's looking for. God pelts him with over 70 questions of his own. If you've never read Job 38, 39, 40, it's question after question after question after question. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Hey, Job, can you make it snow? How about the constellations in the sky? You got anything to do with those? God just asserting his absolute sovereignty over all of life. And the wonderful thing about the book of Job is, and about him is, that he gets it. And he goes through his hard time and he struggles with it. And he's got his wife and his three buddies who are giving him all of this. And yet he holds on. And he trusts God. And may it be so for you and me. Mitch, the only reason you love God is because things are so good in your life. May God help me. May God help you. When peace like a river attendeth our way, or sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever our lot, thou hast taught us to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen? Amen. 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 Psalms is about worship. 150 of them. That plunge the depths, if you will, of human emotion that give us the full experience of walking with God. When times are great, when times are hard, and all the while encouraging us to love God, to trust God, to worship God, to hang on. The book of Proverbs is about wisdom. When we think about Proverbs, we often think about short little Maxims, right? He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools comes to ruin. Well, chapters 1 through 9 of the book of Proverbs are really paragraphs. Wonderful reading. And then chapters 10 all the way through 29 is really those short little Proverbs you're more familiar with. And then the book ends with some more paragraphs of wisdom. And the book all along is, is setting up simply the consequences of a life Submitted to the wisdom of God or turning away from that into folly. And it takes up friendships and family and money and kids and anger and our mouth and laziness and hard work and just dozens of different topics, practical stuff, urging us to choose wisdom and a blessing that comes from it. The book of Ecclesiastes is about meaning. This is Solomon's record of his attempt 
to find meaning and significance in life apart from God. The little phrase is used in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. Believe what he means by under the sun is literally under the sun, just down here on earth as if there were no God. Life is just vanity. And Solomon tried it all. He tried to find meaning and significance in life apart from God with unbelievable learning, unbelievable wealth, unbelievable pleasure. And he says, you know what? It will not scratch your itch. Where, where true significance and lasting joy is found is in realizing that life is not meant to be lived under the sun that there is a God and life is a gift from him and we're meant to live in submission to him. And when we do, we find significance, we find joy. We do not find all the answers to the mysteries of life. But we do find that in humble trust and in simple submission to him, we find life. Song of Solomon is about marital romance. It's eight chapters, a collection of love songs that celebrates marital love and romance. We literally see in the Bible a man and a woman in a romantic, lively relationship. We see them spending lingering time together. We see them praising each other's beauty and handsomeness. We see them expressing their mutual desire. We even see them consummate their love. It's an amazing book that reminds us that God not only created marriage and ordered marriage and directs marriage in terms of its roles and the like, but we get an eight-chapter book in the Bible that also says God loves romance in the context of of marriage. It's good stuff. Now, what do we do about all these prophetical books? 17 of them. How do we make sense of them? Here's a couple things I want you to know. Concerning the prophetical books, the first thing to know is that the descriptions major and minor refer to length and not importance. So don't be misled. 17 prophetical books. A lot of times you'll hear them talked about five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. The only reason those distinctions or those labels were given is because of length. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. Jeremiah is 52 chapters long. Ezekiel, I believe, is 38 chapters long. Those are long books, much longer than Obadiah, which is one chapter long. So we can kind of see why they would call these major and these minor. It's a little bit inconsistent, though. Lamentations is only five chapters long, but it's a major prophet. Zechariah is 14 chapters long, but it's a minor prophet. It's unfortunate that we have these labels because we're often prone to think major, minor, boy, these must be important and these not so important. But that's certainly not the case. If you've ever spent any time reading the little minor prophets, you know that they pack as much punch as any portion of your Bible. 
So just keep that in mind as you think about the 17 prophetical books, major prophets, minor prophets. Now, the second thing to know is that these are that there are three major categories that these prophets fit into. We said a little bit about that earlier. Pre-exilic, exilic, and post-exilic. Okay? And then there's three prophets that don't really fit into it. Let me show you what I mean by all of that. You'll remember, we said after the period of the judges, Israel called out for a king. We want a king like all the other nations. And God gave them one, Saul, in 1051 B.C., he reigned for 40 years, and then David became king in 1011, and then Solomon became king in 971. And then you'll remember, Solomon's son made his foolish decision, and the kingdom split in 931 B.C. into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. We said that the northern kingdom went along until the Assyrians in 722 B.C., 2 Kings 17, came in, defeated them, and took vast amounts of them away into exile. Now, before that happened, God sent two prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel, Amos and Hosea. The way I remember this is, ah, oh, judgment's coming. A-H, all right? Amos and Hosea. Or you can do Hosea Amos. Ha, judgment's coming. God raised up these prophets to go to the northern kingdom of Israel and call them to repentance, call them to obedience, warn them of impending judgment if they continued in their rebellion. So these two are pre-exilic prophets to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, we said the southern kingdom survived a little bit longer until the Babylonians came in 2 Kings 25, 586 B.C., destroyed them, destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Before that happened, God sent a number of prophets, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah. I've remembered this for years as Jim's Hajah. Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah. These are pre-exilic prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them of impending judgment, calling them back to obedience to God and his law. Well, judgment hit. And Jeremiah cried about it. It's the book of Lamentations. These three are exilic Prophets, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. When Jerusalem fell, when the temple was destroyed, Jeremiah lamented it. We get the book of Lamentations. It's five chapters long. Interesting thing about the book of Lamentations. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, and on, on down. That's as far as I can remember. All right? 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 1 of Lamentations is 22 verses long. The first word of verse 1 begins with Aleph. The first word of verse 2 begins with Beit. The first word of verse 3 begins with Gimel, Dalit. He worked his way through the entire Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 2 is 22 verses long, and he did it again. Chapter 3 is 66 verses long. 
And he did Aleph, 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 Beit, 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 Gimel, 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 Dalit, Dalit, Dalit. Chapter 4 is 22 verses long, and he did it again. Chapter 5 is 22 verses long, but he didn't do the alphabet. And we're left to wonder why. And we don't know. Speculation is that maybe he wanted to say poetically that now that Jerusalem has fallen, everything has fallen apart. We're not sure. It's just an interesting little thing about this book. Ezekiel was taken into exile. Daniel, we know his story. Many of us do. He was taken into exile and exalted to an amazing place of influence in Babylon. Well, remember we said that 70 years later, what happened? They got to come home. God brought them back under Zerubbabel, 50,000 to rebuild the temple. And remember, they got to work, but then opposition hit and they stopped working on it for 16 years until God raised up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to come along and say, get back to work. And they did and finished the temple. And then Ezra came back and then Nehemiah came back, rebuild the temple, rebuild the people, rebuild the walls. And then a little bit later, God raised up Malachi to come and call the leadership within Israel to repentance from their self-righteousness. The book of Malachi, about 425 B.C. And he's the last of the prophets that God raised up until John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness. So some of these prophets are pre-exilic. They come before the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom goes into exile. These three are exilic. Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, during the exile. And then Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are post-exilic. Now, practically, how does this help? If this is all you know about the book of Amos, pre-exilic prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, if that's all you know and you went home tonight and read through it, there's going to be tons of stuff you don't get. Tons of stuff I still don't get but it'll make more sense. If all you know about the little book of Haggai is, okay, they went into exile, they came back, they started to work on the temple, but then they quit. And God raised up Haggai to get them back to work. And then you read the book of Haggai. You can read it in four or five minutes. It's so short. There'll be some things in there you don't understand, but guess what? You'll understand a lot more of it. Second, I can do this. All right. Okay. So hopefully that um, gives you a little bit better understanding of the Old Testament there and fills in some of those gaps that, that you may not have had. And then next week, we'll be jumping into the New Testament, and he'll trace uh, the history of that going through Paul's journeys, those three missionary journeys, and then explaining what books of the Bible were written during those journeys right there. So I think you'll find that helpful as well. And the week after that, John will uh, jump uh, jump us into um, getting more practicals and more specifics in terms of uh, actual studying of the Bible. So you are dismissed, and Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday. Josh? Josh.